Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Those of you who worship with us on a week-by-week basis know that we are in a series entitled The Twelve People You Love. I'll have to tell you, if you missed last Sabbath and last night, you missed something profoundly powerful. We are just thrilled to be focusing on something that is not a program, but is a lifestyle. This 12 People You Love series is part of our spring training for disciples. If you are in a lifelong, life-changing journey with Jesus, which is what we refer to discipleship as being, then this is truly important for you. You'll notice that week by week, program by program, we will have an interview, we will have a focus on what disciples do, and especially on the people in your lives that you love. If you happen to miss last Sabbath or last night, go to our website, be sure and watch that. Be sure also that you received a booklet if you didn't already, and join us in this venture, a venture of love to fulfill what Jesus called us to do, the 12 people you love. We are excited today to have as um, the person we're going to interview um, as it relates to the sermon today, Dr. Harvey Elder. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Harvey. Now, Dr. Harvey is actively teaching now in the School of Medicine, and he's also an active part of our prayer ministry here at the University Church, amongst the other things that he's involved in. So we thank you for taking the time for being with us today. Let me ask you, Dr. Harvey, as a physician, What are some of the ways in which you try to live out daily the motto of this university, to make man whole? It's a good question, Adrian. As I've met with patients, now, I take care of patients with HIV. Mm. That's primarily what I do. And what I observed a long time ago is these patients have a very poor self-image. But then it became increasingly clear they're not the only ones with a poor self-image. I struggled with a poor self-image. I'll bet if I talked with you for long enough, I'd find out there are times you struggle with the self-image too. I suspect all of us struggle with self-image. And so as a clinician caring for people, it's not just taking care of the medical but can I help them realize they're God's beautiful child. They are loved by the maker of the universe. They are precious. And as a precious child of God, they will want to do something to take care of themselves. Secondly, I also see a lot of them feel very guilty. Well, you can say they have a lot to feel guilty about. We all do. Yes, yes. But there's forgiveness. 
and they don't know about it, and I can share it with them. And so that's part of what I do. Wow, that's beautiful. beautiful. That is very beautiful. So you have mentioned that you have interacted and worked with patients with, with AIDS, and you've been a huge part in our community with our response to the AIDS epidemic. How has faith, and what has the role of faith played into your interaction with patients that at the time seem less than desirable? Yeah. <clears throat> if people who knew me growing up realized I took care of people with AIDS, they would laugh until they hurt. Mm. Because I grew up as a redneck. We love rednecks. And most people find that difficult to believe. But the difference is what God has done to my life. Mm. Amen. Amen. Uh, mm. God has put me here, and I will tell you the story very briefly. Um, I have a son who was born in 1960 and a daughter. In 83, my son was 23, I saw a 23-year-old patient mm -hmm. who had AIDS. He was one of 10 children, seven boys, three girls, five of the seven boys were gay. I wondered why this mixed up family, and as we talked, I learned every child had been physically, emotionally, and sexually abused by their father. Mm. Now, you don't have to explain to me what that means. Mm -hmm. I know. I haven't a clue what it was about. And I would sit at my side of the table, this is 83, no treatment, and wonder why am I on this side and he's on that side. And you can say all you want about my intelligence and studying hard, that's all gift. In my family of origin, they're immigrants. We studied hard, we had no choice. You know, all of that was gift. I was gifted, he was not. And it wasn't fair. And as I thought about it and who God was and what the situation was, God had given me a gift. And I could make it more fair by giving it away. And that's what my faith did for me. It transformed me. And about six weeks later, I woke up about one in the morning with a very clear question. Harvey, what would Jesus do if he were an infectious disease physician, which I was, in Loma Linda. And it was very clear, he would take care of people with HIV and AIDS. Mm -hmm. right. And that was my call. So I've been faithful till he tells me I can quit. Wow, wow, how beautiful, how beautiful. As you look back, Dr. Harvey, over your many decades of service to this community, what does Jesus' command to love one another mean to you? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm glad you asked the question, Adrian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what, it, what I've said is I, I want to focus on just that. It took this redneck mm. and transformed him mm -hmm. into a loving person. Wow, wow. So that 
whether this person is an injection drug user who I dis despise or a gay man, doesn't matter. I can put my arms around them and say, man, I care about you. You matter to me. I want to see you do better. We've got to do better. Mm. And it comes from my heart. Wow. And they feel that. Wow. And their lives change. And my life, life has changed. changed. Mm. My life has changed. Mm. Wow. Powerful. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Yes. Harvey, thank you so much for sharing with us what the love of Christ looks like in action. Let's give him a hand. Amen. Harvey Elder, ladies and gentlemen, it is so inspiring to belong to a community where you hear a myriad of stories being used by Jesus to show us how to love in deeper ways. I went to the Garden of Love and saw what I had not yet seen. A chapel was built where I used to play on the green. <laughs> and the gates of the chapel were shut, and the words, Thou shalt not, were writ over the door. So I turned to the garden of love, which so many sweet flowers had bore. And I saw Oh, I saw that it was filled with graves and tombstones where flowers should be. And the priests in black gowns were walking their rounds and binding with briars my joys and desires. And binding with briars my joys and desires. Amateur theologian and brilliant British poet William Blake writes this haunting critique of a religion that would seek to replace the parishioner's Edenic experience frolicking around in the garden with a briar-bound belief system. To those of us who would be tempted to construct faith systems that operate under the rule of thou shalt not, Blake reminds us that what we are merely building are whitewashed chapels. Sure, they look beautiful on the outside, but inside they're cold, closed, and full of dead men's bones. You know, perhaps this is the key to understanding the rather sobering statistics that emerged the last year with Barna's latest State of the Amer American Church report. They discovered that while a robust majority of Americans, 73% of us to be exact, would identify as Christian, only a mere 31% reported to practicing their faith regularly. You see, friends, the secret is out. And the truth is, 
that religion has either retreated to, or perhaps more aptly said, been forced to move and dwell on the margins of society. And our attempts at relevance are punctuated often by worship wars that focus on music and the occasional salacious scandal and celebrity speaker who peddles the gospel for prosperity and profit. We have transformed grace into a gift we afford only to those who agree with us. And all the while, the world, well, the world is looking at the followers of Jesus and asking the poignant question, where's the love? Where is that mysterious power that has the ability to ply prose into poetry? That awesome force that can shape hearts of stone into sculptures to the divine. Even as it converts blank canvases into new and exciting contexts, all the while transforming our noisy and tumultuous sounds into joyous tunes. Once I heard that the church no matter, no, doesn't matter anymore. It is irrelevant. But to those questions and to the assumption that the church is now dead, our community, this community, responds that we will not go quietly into the gentle good night because the Loma Linda University Church, friends, still believes that the local church is the hope of the world. And so we say, we say, please join us as we embark on a messy journey we like to call discipleship. We have done so by asking you to love 12 people. Now, if you're like me, there's been a question rattling around in your head for the past week, namely, how on earth do I go and love people? So today we turn to the witness of Scripture in the hopes that it may provide us the courage that we need to love the way he loves. So if you have a Bible with you, won't you turn with me to John chapter 13. John 13. In the very first verse, the author begins by introducing Jesus' farewell speech. He does so by presenting a summary of his gospel. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his time had come to leave this world and return to the Father, having loved those who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Like a master artist, the beloved disciple is feverishly sketching out the story of salvation. And there's the first brushstroke, beautiful in its simplicity. Now, before the feast 
of the Passover. The author wants us to remember that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is the temple that will be destroyed only to be rebuilt three days later. Undoubtedly, the words of the Messiah still echo in his ears as he remembers Jesus speaking and feeding the crowds and telling them, one day, one day very soon, you shall feast on my body and my blood. The second stroke sets the tone for John's last move in his narrative of glorification. Now, when the time had come for Jesus to leave this world and return to his Father, and here the text is trying to remind us that what is to follow, both foot washing and crucifixion, are steps in the ladder that Christ is constructing to connect our world with his Father's world. And finally, you have it, the third stroke having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Now, Scripture presents us the rich texture that is to become the whole of the Christian gospel. You see, by loving them to the end, Jesus can continue loving his friends beyond the end, because in Christ, every end simply represents a new beginning. And this is ultimately supreme love. Love devoid of agendas and angst, free from pride and prejudice. The gospel will have us remember that the only antidote to that dangerous disease of false humility and inverted pride is love. For it represents the connective tissue that binds together the body of Christ and the only hope that the world has for redemption and the introduction of the reign of God. Now, I know what you're thinking. Conversations about the kingdom often are common amongst Christian contexts. You know, sometimes we even puff each other up. We talk about the kingdom hoping secretly that some of its power may rub off on us. Again, the gospel reminds us that love really is about the other person. That it spills into service, not in order to show how hard it works, but because this is its natural state. So how dare we? How dare we, Christ followers, complain about Christian apathy when we have co-opted the gospel of love and transformed it into a weapon 
You see, we use it as a mallet to beat each other over the head with our doctrinal dogmas. We use it as the spark that will continue to light the fires of indifference and intolerance. You know, sometimes I wonder if there is any hope for the church. You see, in the middle of my despair, I hear a voice. The gentle words of a man who took the 12 people he loved to the upper room, and he lazily reclined around a dinner table and said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, to be sure, this isn't a new law. Its newness is grounded in the novel possibility that the commandment has acquired because God has sent his Son. So it really isn't about the place of the commandment amidst the history of ideas but rather it's a phenomena of the new world that Christ has brought into being. Well, what kind of world is that? Can you indulge me as I paint a picture for you? Imagine Jesus walking. He moves with the 12 people he loves. And the heat of the Judean desert gives way to the coolness of the evening breeze. And so the men decide to set up camp for the night. And they come together. And just before they are to go to sleep, Jesus does the same thing that he has been doing for the past three and a half years. Namely, he puts his sleeping bag right between Simon and Levi Matthew so that the zealot won't slit the throat of the Roman collaborator and Jewish traitor during the night. And just as the guerrilla fighter and the tax collector are about to doze off to sleep, it finally dawns on them. There's something different about this carpenter. His way continues to challenge our paradigms. You see, you and I have been trained to believe that we are loved because of. While Jesus is telling us, I love you in spite of. Maybe that's what the great writer and storyteller J.R.R. Tolkien had in mind when he wrote his masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings. As many of you know, the story recounts the adventures of young Frodo Baggins as he takes the people he loves 
on a desperate and valiant attempt to destroy the ring of power that threatens to put all of Middle Earth under heel. But what strikes me about the story is that Tolkien chooses for his protagonist not a wizard or a knight or a he-man. Instead, he elects a hobbit, a halfling, a diminutive being. Frodo wants nothing more than to simply remain on and in the Shire. He's not particularly skilled in war. He doesn't like violence, and he loathes adventure. But what will, what will become apparent throughout the trilogy is that the stories that matter, you know, those tales that are remembered for being heroic are not the ones about falling in love. Rather, they're the ones about standing in love. You see, because after all, showing up is half the battle. And Christ has called you and I to be relentless in the way he loves. Because Jesus is in the business of transforming he-men into hobbits. So give me those family feasts, foot washings, and farewell speeches. Give them to me surrounded by tax collectors and thieves and zealots and sinners by sons of thunder transformed into hobbits because that's the only way that Jesus can turn this he-man world upside down as he continues to invite into the, his halfling kingdom former he-men turned hobbits. By this, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, too often we talk about the mark of the beast. I think it's about time we start talking about the mark of Christ. You see, our identity is grounded in our ability to love each other, to reflect that self-sacrificial love that God has for the world. Maybe the great German psychologist Eric Fromm had it right when he said that love is the greatest of all art forms. Now, is, if Fromm is right, and if you and I desire to love the same way that Jesus loved, then, loved, then we must approach learning how to love in the same way we would approach the mastery of any art. Whether that be painting or music 
medicine, or engineering. So again, you might be wondering, well, how on earth do I master an art? I'm glad you asked. Because conveniently, the mastery of any art can be divided into two distinct sections. On the one hand, you have learning the theory. On the other, you have learning the practice. Incompetency occurs when you can coalesce your theory and your practice. But there is still one item that remains pivotal if you really want to earn and become a master of any art. And that is that the art must become a matter of ultimate concern. In other words, there can be nothing more important than the pursuit of the art when it comes to loving, the question that we need to answer for ourselves is, how bad do we want it? And do we dare and believe that love truly does possess the power to transform the world? Now, a mere 227 miles away, there's a place a landscape that is desolate, an environment that is unforgiving. It's a desert in Eastern California. We know it commonly as Death Valley. What you probably don't know is that that place received this forbidding name in 1849 when a group of explorers got lost. And as they surveyed the environment, they decided that nothing could ever survive in those conditions. And the idea slowly crept into the consciousness of most Americans. That is until the winter of 2004, when seven inches of rain flooded the scorched earth. By spring of 2005, the desert floor was covered with flowers. And the reality is this. Death Valley wasn't really dead. It was dormant. To a church that has been forced to now exist on the margins of society, I tell you this, we are not dead, we are merely dormant, anxiously expecting, praying for that latter rain, the downpouring of the Holy Spirit that will teach us how to love the same way that Jesus loved. Do you believe that? Do you hope for it? Well, if so, I'd like you to indulge me and do a little exercise with me. Now, I hope you all have your book. And if you don't, don't fret. We have some 
in the foyer that you can pick them up. They're absolutely free of charge. I mean, we won't get mad if you give a little money to the building project, but they're free of charge. I pray that you have penciled in some names. Now, I want you to think about those names. The names of these people that Christ is calling you to love. Now, I'm sure in your list you have a James, maybe a John, an Andrew, and a Thomas. Perhaps if the parents were really adventurous, you might even have a Nathaniel or a Bartholomew. No, but those aren't the names that I want you to zero in on today. Today, I want you to think about the Simons. You know, those people that have a vastly different idea than the one you possess on how this country ought to be run. Or how about you think about the Levi Matthews, individuals who have made some lifestyle choices that you can't really understand. You know, these are the people that he is calling you to love. Why? Because it's difficult. Because it hurts. But if you commit yourself to the artistry of learning how to love well, you will realize that tax collectors and zealots and halflings and hobbits are all really the same. Because after all, we are all works of art and artisans at work. I pray today that as you continue to move through the 12 people you love, you may once again come to that garden accompanied, and there you can frolic with the one who loved us to the very end. Won't you pray with me? And so, Lord, here we are. Broken vessels. Yearning to love and to be loved. Artisans who are hoping to learn how to master the craft of loving well without angst or agendas. But we can't do it alone. So we pray that you teach us in the name of Jesus and all the people of God said, Amen.